But before I get into this year and tonight specifically, I want to begin by asking us a few questions that will be pertinent to our study and laying a foundation. I think it's important for you guys to understand and assess where you are at in order to get the most out of this year at Refuge. The reality is that those of you who are in this room tonight probably represent several different upbringings. You guys probably have different convictions, doubts, questions about God or life or purpose, things of that matter. Some of you were brought up in the church, but probably different denominations. So I'm sure we have some who grew up in the Catholic Church. Mike, I know you're one of them. Ellen, I believe you grew up Methodist. Is that right? Some of you grew up Presbyterian. Jordan, right? Some of you Baptists. Some of you grew up Pentecostal. Some of you grew up Lutheran. The list can go on and on. And with that many different upbringings, we're bound to have different ideologies and thoughts and convictions based on some parts of Scripture, at least in a lot of what I will say for now, secondary things, though I want to argue against that here in a little bit. Others of you tonight maybe didn't grow up in the church at all. In fact, maybe some here tonight have never actually believed in God. Maybe some of you are wandering from God. Some of you might lie in the field of atheism or agnosticism. But I'm sure there are others here tonight who have believed in God their entire life and have based their convictions on the Word and have had intimate relationship with Christ in a personal way for years. So this... With all of that kind of different background, I want to ask some rhetorical questions. I'm not looking for you to give me an answer, Josh, all right? I want you to answer in your mind. I'm going to allow for a little bit of space after I ask these questions in order for you to be able to contemplate in your mind. I'd ask that in today's culture especially, the entertainment world, we're lazy, we need to be uh, constantly chewing on something. Don't allow your mind to run away from you in the context of 10 minutes of, or 10 seconds of silence, okay? So lock in, answer the question in your head, rhetorically, don't say it out loud. Why do you believe in God? Or for others of you, why don't you believe in God? Do you believe that Jesus actually was the Son of God, fully God, fully man, that He is who He says He was? Do you tonight believe that the Bible is actually God's Word? Actually inerrant? Actually inspired? Or all of it? Do you believe that all of this is applicable and relevant today? And why do you believe that? Why or why not? Why would you reject that it is? Why would you say, yes, it definitely is? I'm probably sure, the point I'm trying to get at with some of these questions is I'm sure many of you would say yes to these things, but have no idea why you actually believe these things, right? Why do you believe what you believe? This leads to further questions that we want to ask this year as well. Things like this. If, in, if tonight you are a person who rejects God, or you reject his word as a source of of truth, I want to ask you this. What do you base your morals on? How do you make a distinction between right and wrong? And who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong? If there is no foundation like the Bible. Is there such thing as purpose and meaning? If you reject God, if you reject the word of God, where does meaning come from? Where does 
purpose come from? These are things you should think about. If you do believe in God, now, if you're at the other table, do you believe that the Bible is actually the Word of God? Is what we read today reliable? Think about it. With all the translations, with all the debates, with all the scrutiny, and what has seemed to be addition or subtractions, how can we know for sure that what we are reading is the very Word of God? How do you know that this is actually the Word of God? What is your source there? What has given you that confidence? If you believe in God and you believe that the Word or the, the Bible is the Word of God, where do you get this affirmation? Where does your conviction of its truth come from? Is it based on your parents, the way you were brought up? Were you spoon-fed to believe these things? Is it based on what you've been taught by maybe teachers or preachers? Is it based on historical reasoning? Is it based on something else? If you do believe that God is real, if you believe that He has given us His Word, if you believe that we ought to live by His Word in all things, now the question will become, are you indeed living according to the Word of God? So Christians tonight who would say yes to these things, I'm confident, I know why, it's personal for me. Let me ask you, are you allowing for all of your thinking and acting your entire worldview to be submissive to the word of God? Or as we so often heard, do you approach the word of God a la carte? Are there truly primary and secondary things in the word of God? Are the things that pertain to salvation the primary things, but everything else is secondary? And where does God show us that in Scripture? Is it okay to say we cannot shake on these truths, but there are some things that maybe we can have some flexibility? I'm not implying one way or another. I'm just asking if this is true, where do you get this? Where do your convictions lie? And who gets to determine these things? Is it okay to be incredibly convicted, Christians? This is, this is, this is big. Is it okay for you to be incredibly convicted about one thing that the Bible says, but to be soft on other things? I said this to our leaders last week when we were preparing. I found in a lot of my discussions with people who are lost, when I'm sharing the gospel, I'm asking them if they reject God, where their convictions lie. Where do you get right and wrong? Isn't this line of right and wrong always shifting? Isn't it up to the person who is speaking or deciding or acting, right? Like, I, I look at them and say, you're inconsistent with your worldview. You're inconsistent with your conviction because you say, in one sense, that a person should have the freedom and autonomy to determine what is right and what is wrong. But that's not just a blanket statement because you make convictions of, well, this is wrong. But why? Because if freedom and autonomy of the person is what determines whether something is right and wrong, then why does one person get to trump the other? You see, people who reject God make convictions and statements based on these lines of right and wrong all the time. And they cannot give an accurate, logical reason for why they have such standards. It's ever changing. But the big conviction that I've been faced with recently is Christians do the same thing. The exact same thing. We'll stand up in massive ways and say you cannot murder. You cannot commit adultery. But then we kind of go along with the world and culture as far as what dating looks like. And how far is too far. 
will say, no, homosexuality is wrong. And although this is changing in the evangelical realm as well, but we'll say, no, this is wrong. But when it comes to things like marriage or giving or how you spend your money or how you're entertained, we're soft. We'll let inappropriate things go before our eyes or things go in our ears. And, and the reality is, as James says, if you've broken one part of the law, you're guilty for what? All of it. And so we have a problem as Christians, and it is that we are just as inconsistent as those who reject God. The question is, are we basing our convictions on the word of truth? And if so, how do we know it's the word of truth? We have a very specific goal that we want to achieve this year in refuge. And I hope, my prayer is that those of you who come will stick it out uh, because each week is going to build on the next until the spring, which will kind of have a different theme and talk, topic each week, which we'll discuss. Now, you may say, well, I can't come every single week. So if I miss a week, is it pointless to come the next week? Or what happens if I want to invite a friend? It's fine. We're going to have uh, plenty of kind of recaps here and there. And we're actually, for the first year, going to make these messages available online. So you can stay caught up if you end up missing a week. But it's going to be crucial because I'm not going to say everything that we need to know in one week. I can't. We're going to be building an argument, building a case for the sufficiency of Scripture, and having a confident faith which will lead us into action of cultivating a biblical worldview. But this is our goal this year. It's a very specific goal that we want to achieve. We want to see people transformed by the Word of God through the Spirit of God and actively transforming the world for the glory of God. I'll say that again. We want to see people transformed by the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, and actively transforming the world for the glory of God. What this looks like specifically is, this semester, we're going to talk about how an individual can actually be transformed by the Word of God. We're going to look at what that means here in a second. And in the spring semester, it will be a call to action. If we've truly been transformed, we've been building a case for the sufficiency of Scripture, for what God reveals to us in the Scripture, what God demands and commands us from Scripture, the spring semester will now be how to put into action as transformed people what God has called us to do to transform a culture and reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you... And FYI, this is a statement that we hold to here. Um, I, I take this from the statement of faith, confession of faith from the Gospel Coalition, if you're familiar with it. So I want to read what I believe about the Word of God, what our leadership here believes about the Word of God, so there's no confusion. You can know my foundation based on what, what I'm about to say. Our position is that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, contains no errors. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved, keyword, in the scriptures. The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which are both record and means of God's saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative without error in the original writings. Complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, 
It's sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do. And it is final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. So we confess at Refuge and in this church that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively. What that means is we believe that our sin has separated us from God. Therefore, it is difficult in our sinfulness to understand fully the word of God and the fact that God is infinite and we are finite. He is eternal. We are not, right? But enlightened by the Spirit of God, amen, we can know God's revealed truth truly. We believe that. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches. It is to be obeyed as God's command in all that it requires. And it is to be trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. So as God's people hear the word, believe the word, and obey the word, they are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. In other words, they're transformed. Now, I also need to let you know this. I won't, our small group leaders won't, our leadership in general will not apologize for using the word of God as our defense in all things. Because we believe, apart from the word of God, we don't have any defense. If you disagree, I'm hoping that especially the next eight weeks and the rest of the semester will show you why we're convicted in that and why we believe that. So for those of you who struggle with that, I hope you'll stick with us and understand why we are convicted about this truth. We believe that morality, worldview, and purpose crumble outside the word of God. If you take away the word of God, we believe purpose is no longer a thing. Meaning no longer exists. Your worldview is contradictory. There is no right and wrong. And if that's the case, we're all wasting our time here tonight. If there is no God, this is foolishness. In fact, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of Christ? Which is just a part, a crucial part. He's making a point. But it's a part of God's eternal plan. And what does Paul say? If Christ didn't raise from the dead, we are what? Do you remember? Of the most to be pitied. We are the biggest fools in all the earth. If we would lay down our life and sacrifice what the world says is happiness and joy and will give us comfort and affirmation and purpose and meaning. If they're right and we're wrong and the word of God is irrelevant, we are a bunch of morons who go to church, try to live a specific way, have quiet times, pray, and how stupid is praising God and singing? That would be the weirdest of all of it probably. But we absolutely are convicted and believe that all of life has meaning and purpose. There's conviction based on what is right and wrong, and it's according to what God has revealed through his word. We believe the foolishness is actually to reject God, and that is what the Bible tells us. Romans 1 shows us that people are foolish in their minds. They've suppressed the truth. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So with this said, we believe that historical reasoning, and I'm going to use this word often, historical reasoning or credibility, what that means is um, 
presenting a case for the credibility of the Word of God based on things outside the Word of God. So we're actually going to spend some time these next eight weeks specifically to talk about why we believe there is historical reasoning, there is an argument, there is evidence that shows that the Bible is legitimate. Okay? We're going to spend eight weeks showing this. I'll explain where this doesn't complete what we want to do here in a moment. But we do believe that historical reasoning has its place. We believe that knowing why you believe the Bible, uh, we believe that knowing the history of the Bible, the history of the church, the codexes, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Apocrypha, why not, all these types of things, we believe that this can be supplemental to understanding for believers and for non-believers. So this year at Refuge, we're going to begin with the history and reliability of the Old and New Testament. We are going to discuss why we reject the Apocrypha as God's Word. We do not believe that it is inspired Scripture, sacred. We will also talk about the early church and their convictions about Christ, about what the church looks like, about His Word. We will discuss the Reformation And the crucial part that the Reformation played in the history of the church. In fact, our first eight weeks will be dedicated specifically to these studies. So what's really neat is I would assume that probably most of you have never ever looked into these things. Many of you may have, but I would assume that most of you have not done an extensive research and study and received an education in these types of things. And we believe that they have a place, that they can be supplemental But I do need to give you a disclaimer up front. We are not attempting to give an exhaustive apologetic for these topics, right? You will not be receiving an exhaustive semester worth of Old Testament credibility and New Testament credibility and the self-authenticating nature of Scripture and why not the Apocrypha. We would frankly need a lot more time to do so and you would probably want somebody far more educated and intelligent than me to stand up and do that. But... For the sake of our study, we will highlight the essentials. And it will, by God's grace, I believe, be fruitful for us. Then at the beginning of November, this is important, we're going to make an important transition. From historical reasoning and credibility, we'll move from this and we'll discuss the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. What does the Bible say about the Bible? What does the Bible declare about itself being God's Word? What does Jesus say about these things? What do the apostles say about these things? As I said above, historical reasoning has its place, but please hear me, this is crucial. It does not produce faith. So if you're coming in going, oh sweet, I get to learn about the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha, and the manuscripts, and finally hear some things, and maybe some answers to questions I've had a long time, so now I can finally be confident in the Word of God. If you think at the end of eight weeks, even if every single one of your questions is answered, I promise you, it will not produce faith. We reject that it's possible to do that. Because if you can receive faith from that, It would be earned. It would be merit. You would be smarter than the person who can't understand it. And we believe that faith is a gift by grace. So I promise you, 
If the reason you reject God is because you think you don't know enough about the Bible or the Word of God or its credibility and you think these next eight weeks that all of a sudden it will boost you and now give you faith, it will not happen. It may happen by the Spirit of God, but that will be not because of this. It will be in spite of this. The Bible warns us over and over about this in case you think I'm wrong. In James chapter 1, I want you to turn to James chapter 1. We don't have a text tonight that we're preaching from. In fact, I, I told, I think, Chase, I was a little nervous for these eight, first eight weeks. The reason I'm a little nervous is because um, it's going to be more teaching than preaching. And so I, I like to have a passage. You guys know this is what we've been doing since I preached here. We go through a book, and we go through slow. Listen, we had like 30-something weeks last year of refuge, and it took us all 30-something weeks to go through the entire letter of Ephesians. So uh, that's, that's what I prefer We're doing something a little different this year because I believe that this is uh, essential and needed in this generation, especially. Um, But because I'm not preaching from a text tonight, I want you to look at these verses. Go to James chapter 1, and we are going to pick up in verse 22. Again, the line of thinking that we're on is that understanding and knowledge itself does not produce faith. In verse 22, it says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's crucial. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So check this out. If you hear convicting things in a good case for Christ and for the Old Testament, the New Testament, this next eight weeks, and all of a sudden at the end of eight weeks, you're like, oh, you know what? That makes sense. I'm now convinced that God is real. The reason we do not believe that that will produce faith is because you will still be required to bear fruit. We believe according to Scripture, we're about to read in James chapter 2, that those who are truly saved produce fruit. You're not saved by works, and you're not kept by your own works. We believe you're saved by grace, but now being saved by grace, you don't keep your salvation by works. You keep it by God's grace. The power of the Holy Spirit seals you. You have a guaranteed inheritance. It is God, Philippians 2.13, who is working in you both to will and to work according to his own good pleasure. Sanctification is the work of God because it's still part of salvation. Therefore, we're saying this. If you can come to some conclusion about faith on your own based on facts and logic and reasoning, you still don't have the ability to bear fruit. Why? Because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a depraved sinner. We're going to look at verses that talk about what you are unable to do unless you are born again. And the Bible does not say that you're born again by understanding the right things, learning the right things. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But rather, it is the gift of God. Faith is given to you according to the will of God, by grace, and it's producing in you a work which is done By the Holy Spirit for God's glory. And that's key. If you could earn it, if you could be smart enough to understand it and claim it, if you could be uh, good enough to produce works on your own, who gets the glory? You do. And that's not grace. 
I want you to look now at James chapter 2. Flip over one page, probably it might be on the same page. James chapter 2, begin verse, beginning in verse 14. Again, I want to remind you before we read these verses, these verses do not teach that to be saved you produce works. All right? And I'll show this in a second. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James replies here and says this, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Haunting verse right here. You believe that God is one. You do well. Guess what? Even the demons believe. And they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Alright, so look at me. We see here that there is a faith, a believing, that is not a saving faith. This, this should cause all of us to examine very carefully, is the Spirit of God moving in my life? Have I been born again? Am I being sanctified, set apart, becoming more like Christ? That's what that means. Am I being transformed? Or if I look at my life a year ago, am I the same person? Because if I say I believe in God, but yet I do not repent of sin, I'm living in sin, I'm moving further away from God, you may want to ask yourself, I wonder if my faith is just an acknowledgement that there is a God, but it's not a saving faith. Again, this is why we say these first eight weeks will not produce faith in you. And if that's what you're seeking, answer so that you can have assurance. You need to wait till week nine where we show you where faith truly comes from. One of the scariest passages, everybody flipped to Matthew chapter seven. For those of you who have heard me speak, I think I say this maybe 75% of my messages. I, I, I really think I bring up this verse 75% of my messages. I'll show you in one more spot here in scripture why there are plenty of people who believe in God but are not saved. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Jesus gives us an incredible warning. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, how many? Many! Not, not, not a small little bit. Many people will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? We did many mighty works in your name. Pause for a second. That's quite a resume. That's, that's quite a resume. God, I did these things. Remember, faith is not about what you did. That's the problem here. He will declare to them, I never knew you. By the way, this is, I, my dad pointed this out to me today. This is a really neat passage for eternal security. Because Jesus didn't say, I knew you, but then I decided not to know you anymore. What did he say? Not once. You didn't lose your salvation. You were never saved. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. First John gives us a tremendous amount of warnings about this very same thing. In other words, I could go on. 
My point is there are plenty of people today who are well-educated in the history and validity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, yet they reject what the Bible says to be as truth. In fact, most Christians could probably have a conversation with an agnostic or an atheist on the street and feel like that person is smarter than them. Many Christians might run into problems and find questions like, I don't really know the answer to that. There, there are well-versed people, people who know, remember, Satan himself knew the word of God incredibly well. Who else in the Bible, the New Testament, that Jesus often rebuked, knew it inside and out? The Pharisees. You want to talk about knowing the word of God, believing in God. What a prime example. But the problem is the Pharisees had ears and did not hear. They had eyes and did not see. They were not born again. They were not regenerate is what that means. So the problem with people believing in the entirety of what the Bible claims, the reason people have an issue with saying, I'm confident this is the word of God and we should base our entire life on it. The reason people reject the word of God in the Bible is not because it isn't historically accurate. The reason people reject it is not because there's a lack of evidence. Holy smokes! Study archaeology in the Middle East and you'll find it all over the place. Talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Boom! Mind-blowing. And we're going to talk about all the evidence that is there. There is, it is not for a lack of evidence that people reject the Bible. It's that the Bible is full of the supernatural, one. It's that the Bible demands a God-centered view, not a man-centered view. It, it tells you that the world doesn't revolve around you. It, it says to keep your life, you must lose it. It says to the rich ruler, go and sell all your possessions and come and follow me. And he was sad because he had many belongings. It demands accountability. It demands surrender and transformation in regeneration, the reason people reject this is because this can only happen by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4. I said I was going to talk to you about verses before. But why faith, according to our own working and merit, is impossible. You want to know why? 2 Corinthians 4 says, that If the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to whom? Those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has what? blinded the minds of the unbelievers from keeping, to keeping them from seeing the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. Ephesians 2. Romans 3. Shows us that apart from Christ, apart from faith, apart from being born again, we're dead. Unable to please God. In fact, Romans 8 says it's impossible for you to please God. Romans 3 says that no one is seeking God. No one is doing good. No one is righteous. No, not one. That is why if you have not been born again and you're looking for answers, again, I tell you, again, these next eight weeks will not produce faith in you. It won't happen. There is no amount of historical reasoning and credibility that can give you faith. In fact, I want to say this. The reality is that the further you dig into these things for faith as an outcome, you will become more and more dissatisfied and aware of the truth that this cannot produce faith. So, our goal, the first eight weeks, is not to give you this 
massive amount of information and teaching so that you can be confident in your faith. It's to educate you as believers so that you can have a confidence, not, not faith, but a confidence, understand where the church came from, where the Bible came from. This is supplemental. This, these are good things to know. You should know this. You should know this. But it's, it's not going to produce for you what you may be seeking. Our goal is to educate you, the history of God's people, His Word, and then lead us to a place beginning in November of needing something more. Faith. And what does Romans 10.17 say? Faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing comes from what? The Word of God. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the Word of God. And Hebrews 11.6 says what? Without faith. It is impossible to please God. So we will show you from the scripture at the end of this semester where faith comes from. That will begin in November. We'll talk about what the Bible says about the Bible. We'll talk about what Jesus says about the Bible. We'll talk about what Jesus says the Bible demands. We will show you how indeed you can have confidence in God and his word. What does it mean to be transformed by seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to, like Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Behold wondrous things from God's law. We are wanting to show you that the word of God is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And this will lead us to the beginning of the spring semester. And our word transformed will be put into action. As people who have been transformed by the word of God, We must now put into action and be transformed in our lives in the midst of an evil culture and generation. And Philippians 2 shows us the best. It says it in verse 14, to do all things without grumbling. Listen to this. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, in case that like went in one ear and out the other, notice what that said. This is our goal. We as Christians are to be lights. Lights in a crooked and twisted generation. Can we all agree, atheist, agnostic, or not, it's a crooked and twisted generation. Culture's messed up, right? The Bible says, as believers, we should be lights in the middle of this. Ephesians says, expose the darkness. John 3 shows us that what? Light came into the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. So notice in Philippians chapter 2 how it says we shine as lights in the world. What does it say? Not grumbling or complaining, but what's the ending of this? By holding fast to something, to the word of life. How you as believers shine as lights in the world is holding fast to the word. You see again, my entire worldview The way I think, the way I act, what I obey, what I put into action is all based on the word of God. And here's the reality. If I don't base all those things on the word of God, I will not shine as a light for Christ in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I might put band-aids on things. I might be really economic friendly. 
I might be a really good person that helps feed the orphans and the widows and the homeless. I might stand up for the unborn. I might do all these noble things. But if it's not based on the word of God, for the glory of God, holding fast to the word of God, I'm not shining as a light like Christ has called me to be. I'm just, as the great pastor says, making the world a better place to go to hell from. And who gives a rip about that? So, we're going to look at cultivating a biblical worldview in the spring semester. In other words, based on the word of God, based on our faith in Christ, and being transformed by the spirit through the word, and based on the scripture being sufficient, how should we live and act and think and speak? What does it mean to put into practice being lights in the world, holding fast the word of life? And this is where we're going to look to Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That's repentance. By the renewing of your mind. So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're going to talk about cultivating a biblical worldview. In other words, how should we as Christians respond to abortion? How should we teach and live and talk in regards to sex and marriage and parenting and homosexuality and money and work and war and patriotism and racism and dating? And the list goes on and on. And each week, sometimes we'll have a topic that we'll cover a couple of weeks. We're going to take a topic one by one based on what we learned this, this fall semester and say, regardless of how we personally feel that we're brought up, what does the Word of God say? And, and I, I need to tell you, there's a reason we're not starting with this. There's a Because, re- I mean, it would be nice to have 30 weeks to go over 30 different topics. We're frankly going to miss a couple important ones this year because we're taking a whole semester to talk about who we are. What does the Bible say? Where does faith come from? Is the Bible sufficient? And this is why. If I were to start tonight and bring up a topic like we're going to about birth control, I would step on all kinds of toes. Every single one of you would have an opinion. Well, you know, we're not ready to have a baby yet. Well, it helps me with my medical stuff. Well, um, we, it's not wise or whatever. Or people would say, you're trying to play God in your life. Or you're sinning and this is a form of abortion. And you may not know, but actually the pill can actually cause abortion. It can kill a fertilized egg. Did you, you know that? Birth control can actually do that. So I'm giving you a glimpse. But anyways, if I were to just drop a bomb and talk about that tonight, you know what happened? Most of you would not come back. You got different convictions different upbringings and opinions about these types of things. And what we cannot do is tackle these topics with a bunch of opinions or my own opinion. We must be able to say, you know what? No, no, no. We've studied the Word of God. We believe that the Word of God is sufficient in all things. Our minds and the way we think is being transformed based on the Word of God. And the Word of God says everything that pertains to life and godliness and the training in righteousness. Therefore, every decision I make, every act, every place I go, every conviction of right and wrong has to be based on the Bible. 
even if it opposes what I've believed for 20 plus years. Even if it opposes what I've done. Even if it means I have to deal with some of the things that I've done. And that's where we say, praise God for the cross and for grace and for forgiveness and washing away our sin. And that God, and I love this, Matt Chandler said, what was one of the biggest, or they, Matt Chandler was asked the question, what's one of the biggest things that caused you and moved you into, Lord, I need you, I love you, and conversion? And it was a pastor who asked this question to a bunch of youth. He said, how many of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross? All of them. Boy, I find great comfort in that. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's what this year is going to look like. Now, I'm running out of time. And I, I have to, because we only have limited time, I want to take about 10 minutes, literally 10 minutes, and I want to give you a couple facts about the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to talk about the reliability of the Old Testament. How can we know that it actually is God's word based on some historical reasoning? Again, I don't believe that this can actually be confirmed only on these things. But what is some answers to tough questions? We're going to talk about that next week. But tonight, in the last 10 minutes, we're going to go really quickly. And this has the potential to be boring. (laughs) So what I'm going to ask, dear Lord, is that you give us energy and keep us locked in. You may want to write some of this down. You can listen to it if you care. If not, that's fine. Um, but this, this last 10 minutes will seem more almost like a lecture. But it's important stuff. It's going to lay the foundation for next week. Tonight, I'm going to give you a brief overview in history of the Old Testament. It will be quick, non-exhaustive, but it will lay a foundation for next week. So as E.J. Young says, he says, The Old Testament is the word of the living and true God. The Old Testament is not merely the national or religious literature of the ancient Hebrews. It's the life-giving oracles of God. It speaks of how God the Creator, the Almighty One, by the word of His power, brought all things into existence. It speaks of the creation of man. It reveals the fall of man and sin entering in the world, which brought him into separation of God and it brought him into depravity. The Old Testament speaks of God's promise from the very beginning through a Redeemer. It points forward to the coming one. The Old Testament is a revealing of God, His plan, His people, and it is all pointing to whom? Christ. Jesus. The Old Testament was written between about 1400 B.C. and 430 B.C. A span of about a thousand years. It includes 39 books in our Old Testament and was written in Hebrew, although Daniel and Ezra have a few small portions of Aramaic. Now, non-Christian Jews, so Jews who reject the New Testament as being inspired and reject Jesus as the Messiah, they call the Old Testament the Tanakh, which is a Hebrew acrostic for these three things, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Non-Christian Jews do not accept New Testament like I mentioned. Now the word testament, New Testament, Old Testament, comes from a word testamentum. It's a Latin word used first by Tertullian, who was an early Christian apologist in the 2nd century. You may have heard of him. We're going to talk about him a little bit when we get to church history in the patristic period, which is the first four centuries A.D. A lot of incredible things happened during that time. It's maybe one of the 
if I'm a geek about anything, it's probably the patristic period. I really love studying what took place. And I'm encouraged by believers who laid down their lives and fought for the sake of Christ during that time. Anyways, Tertullian was the first person to use the word testamentum. Um, it means covenant. So you may not, or agreement. So when you hear Old Testament, it means Old Covenant. Cool, right? New Testament, New Covenant. Makes sense. Now, Tertullian, though, he was the first one to use the word. He wasn't the originator of this thought. The Bible actually was. The Bible refers to an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 9, I'll read this, but jot it so you can check later and make sure I'm not lying. Hebrews 9, verse 18 through 20 looks back at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and says this. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying this, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. He's referring to the Old Covenant. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, the prophet looks forward to the new covenant and says this. This is in the old covenant. And Jeremiah says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Amen, amen, amen. And the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. True Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I, amen, will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Praise God for the new covenant. Praise God that I am not required to be found righteous before God based on a system of law and sacrifices, but that Christ was the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews says, once for all, he's the high priest. I have access to God through the blood of Christ, through Jesus. He became my sin. I became his righteousness. I'm declared justified and right before God. Praise God for the new covenant. Now, the books of the Old Testament, as we come to a conclusion, here's some fun things. The books of the Old Testament vary for us in literary genre, from historical narrative to romantic poetry. The Hebrew Bible has them divided into three categories, as I mentioned, the law, the prophets, and the writings. As we will discuss during the week of the Apocrypha, the third category is often referred to and the other books, not the writings. This is going to be important when we talk about our defense of why the Apocrypha is not inspired. So notice the, the third term can be and the other books. Now, the Hebrew Bible itself rejects the Apocrypha, just like we do. And I will note um, later why when we get there. The Hebrew Old Testament and our Old Testament, listen, are identical in content. Identical in content. It's the same Old Testament. It's just they vary in its order. The Hebrew Bible is set up chronologically for the most part. Whereas our Old Testament is set up according to genre. 
So in our Old Testament, we'll look, same as the Hebrew, okay, but ours is set up differently, and we see four distinct genres that breaks up our Old Testament. If you've ever wondered why our Old Testament is split up the way it is, it's because of this. Genre. The first five books are the what? The Pentateuch, the law. Yeah, which is the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by whom? Moses. Now we'll talk about those who oppose this view um, but the reality is, is we absolutely affirm that Moses wrote uh, the book of the law. Jesus said that too, by the way. Then you have the historical books immediately following. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Okay, right? You know, then you have the wisdom books, which is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then finally, in our Old Testament, you have the prophetical books. You have the major prophets first, Isaiah. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you have the minor prophets, which is Hosea through Malachi. Now, I want you to know that the reason it's called major prophets and minor prophets is not because minor prophets are less important. It's based on size. The major prophets are called major prophets because they're big. Minor prophets are called minor prophets because they're smaller. It's not because one's more important or they were more qualified as a prophet. Make sense? Now, the Tanakh or the Jewish Bible, is not made up of 39 books. Same content, but it's 24 books. Again, same content as ours, just put together differently, chronologically. So they have the law, same as us, the first five books. Then they have the eight books of the prophets, which is Joshua, Judges, Samuel's one book, not first and second, Kings one book, not first and second, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Then they have the book of the twelve which is the Minor Prophets, all considered to be one book. Then it's the 11 books of the writings, which is the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, one book in the Jewish Bible. And it ends with Chronicles, which is one book. First and Second Chronicles is one. Now Jesus alludes to this chrono- chronology of the Hebrew Tanakh in Luke eleven forty nine through 51, Jesus discusses, this is really neat, this is amazing. Jesus discusses the blood of all the prophets from the blood of Abel all the way to Zechariah. He mentions this in Luke chapter 11. This is significant because in the Hebrew Bible, Abel is the first bloodshed in Genesis 4. And Zechariah is the last prophet to be martyred in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. So Jesus is affirming the entirety of the Jewish Bible from Genesis all the way through Chronicles, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. It should be noted, side note, that actually, chronologically, Zechariah was not the last prophet to die in Israel's history. It was actually Uriah, um, who was a prophet to Jerusalem, and he was put to death 200 years after Zechariah. And Ezra and Nehemiah, chronologically, chronologically actually follow chronicles but it's not so in the hebrew bible and jesus affirms the hebrew bible as not being incorrect when he talks blood of abel to the blood of zechariah jesus also alluded to the makeup of three divisions law prophets writings in luke 24 44 jesus was resurrected he's walking on the road to emmaus And he says, everything written about me, notice this, 
Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's believed by scholars that when Jesus uses the word Psalms here, he could be alluding to the entire third division, which is including all the writings. Just as many scholars would say, no, because if he was, why, why give a division for law and a division for prophets and not give a division for the writings? Nor else do you see Psalms including all of that. It's not important whether or not he's affirming the entirety of the Old Testament here because he does so in general with the rest of the New Testament. And here's what I mean. Jesus himself, this is a fun fact, quoted from 24 different Old Testament books. He didn't do so by saying, and then in the book of Daniel chapter 4 verse 12, right? But he will allude to the book of Moses or the book or the, of the law of Moses or he'll refer to stories um, or things that happen in specific books. So 24 books Jesus refers to in his time on earth. The New Testament as a whole quotes from 34 of the 39 Old Testament books. The five that are left out in the New Testament, this is going to be important for our credibility, should these five books be in the Old Testament then. These five books are Ezra, never quoted from, Nehemiah, never, Esther, never, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Interesting. But the important matter here is this. Historically, the scrolls that were kept in the temples were placed not by each book, not by each scroll. It was placed in three collections. Meaning this, if you were to quote from one book that was in a collection, you were affirming the whole collection. So though these five were not specifically affirmed in the Jewish temples, we'll talk about this next week, they had all 39 or 24 in the Jewish sense, but it's the same books. And so to refer to any book in any of the collections was to affirm that all of it was scripture. It was kept in the sacred place in the temple. Now, it's also worth noting, continuing this train of thought, that the Hebrew scriptures are more often referred to in the New Testament as the law and the prophets and never mentioning the writings. Jesus shows us this in Matthew 5, 17, in Matthew eleven thirteen, in Luke 16, 16. Philip says it in John 1, 45. Acts 13, 15 refers to it, as does Acts 24, 14, Romans 3, 12. There's plenty of other places where it refers to the law and the prophets. But this does not exclude the writings either. And here's why. There is no problem in, about including the third grouping of the writings into the prophets. It was assumed in many of these cases, writings is grouped in with the prophets. Not in the collections, in the scrolls, and in the temple, but in this matter. In Acts 2.30, David's called a prophet. Daniel's called a prophet in Matthew 24.15, both of them in the writings. Job in James 5.10 is called a prophet. And he was included in the writings. In fact, sometime the whole Hebrew, sometimes the whole Hebrew Bible or any part of it is referred to as law. So many times they would just refer to the Old Testament as the law. For example, John 10.34 quotes Psalm 82 and calls it law. 1 Corinthians 14.21 says this about Isaiah 28.11. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 through 19 quotes from the Psalms and from Isaiah and says this, whatever the law says. 
assuming that these writings and prophets were actually law. So it's assuming the whole Old Testament is law. It is also interesting to note that Esther, you ready for this? Esther and Song of Solomon do not contain the name of God. You will not find the name of God in Esther or Song of Solomon. We're actually going to discuss this more during the week of the Apocrypha. This is an argument of Roman Catholicism because one of the reasons that we don't acknowledge the Apocrypha, among other things, is because there's no direct relation to it. Sometimes in the New Testament, we'll talk about the one argument there. And simply to say that a book doesn't contain the name of God doesn't mean it should be excluded from the canon. So we'll talk about during the week of the Apocrypha why we believe Esther and Song of Solomon to be in the canon of the Old Testament. I want to leave us tonight with some important dates. I'm going to give you five dates. I'm not going to teach on it. Just five dates that you should know in preparation for next week. Abraham comes into the story 2000 BC. This will be important for next week. 2000 BC, Abraham comes to the story. The Exodus happens in 1446 BC. 1446 BC. David comes in around 1000 BC. The northern kingdom falls in 722. 722. And the southern kingdom falls in 586. This will prepare us for next week. The final three sentences of the night. Next week, we will begin to discuss the credibility of the Old Testament and much of what we just said. Is it actually reliable? Is it actually the Word of God? Can we have confidence in the manuscripts? Why are some books included and others not? So I encourage you to pray this next week and throughout the semester that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see the glory of God in His Word, in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we can have a confident faith and be transformed by the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Come back next week. I'm going to ask you to bear with me for seven more weeks through some teaching type of stuff. All right, just so we can kind of have an education on the history of these things. And then at the beginning of November, we're going to turn into preaching. It's the beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 as well.